Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair and this is Ideas. Tonight's repeat programme, Doctoring the Family, was originally broadcast in 1985. I would tell them when I felt the big pain coming and they had just put a little mask and I'd breathed in and that had covered the peak and then I had been ready to bear down again for the next. But then suddenly I was really out but I didn't know I was going to go right out. And it was so, all over without me knowing it. Yes. And she was terribly contused. Oh, the line of where the forceps dug deep groove. She was yellow and bruised looking. I didn't think it was my baby. You somehow felt as if this baby really didn't belong to you. It belonged to the hospital, and but they were going to be good enough to give it to you to take home. You didn't have this real feeling that you'd done much about this somehow because you didn't see it happening. You were right out for most of it. So it was something that just happened. I mean, one day you had a big fat tummy, and the next day you had this little thing in your arms. But you didn't have much experience in between. If the mother looks to the doctor or the midwife as, as in a sense her savior, her deliverer from the discomfort of the birth, that person, whether it's midwife or doctor, also delivers her from a sense, not completely, but perhaps a sense of her own worth, her own sense of herself as having done it. Welcome to the second program in our series, Doctoring the Family, a look at how medicine has reshaped traditional childbirth and child-rearing practices. Tonight's program focuses on the development of modern, hospital-based obstetrics and the way it has affected women's experience of childbirth. The program is written by Jutta Mason and David Cayley and presented by David Cayley. Now. Push too much. now, just relax. Okay. Just relax. Easy. Easy. Don't push anymore. Don't push anymore. The scene is a Don't hospital delivery room. Birth here is a carefully managed medical procedure, which begins with the laboring woman's admission to hospital. That's a girl. She may have an intravenous needle inserted in her arm, or an electronic monitor strapped to her belly. During the course of her labor, she will be attended by strangers and frequently left alone. If her labor is considered to be progressing too slowly, she will be given drugs to speed it up. Pain-killing drugs may also be given, followed by regional anesthetic for the birth. If the anesthetic slows labor, forceps will be used to extract the baby. Or perhaps, as now happens in one of five cases in Canada, the whole process will be preempted by a cesarean section. Over the course of this century, medical intervention has become an accepted part of childbearing. But viewed in terms of human evolution, or even of recorded history, medicalized childbirth appears as a recent and radical innovation. And one does not have to look very far into the past to see how completely foreign it is to the traditional experience of women. Always, women gave birth in familiar, everyday surroundings, attended by older women who had learned to trust and respect the natural process of birth. The support of the community lent courage and confidence, 
and kept in balance the fear and foreboding which naturally went with a painful and sometimes dangerous transition like childbirth. How this traditional culture gave way to modern obstetrics is the story I want to tell tonight. It begins with the invention of chloroform, the first anesthetic, in 1848. Chloroform made it possible for the first time to actually obliterate a woman's experience of delivering her baby. It also made it possible for doctors to freely employ such already existing tools as the obstetrical forceps. This was Dr. J.B. Watson's theme when he lectured his medical students at the University of Toronto in 1914. At the beginning of the 19th century, a fairly complete knowledge of anatomy served as a sound working knowledge for the obstetrician. The phenomena of normal parturition were known and the management of abnormal cases was conducted on definite scientific lines. The obstetric forceps were in general use and other operative procedures could be carried out. These latter, however, were restricted by reason of the suffering they entailed. It remained for the genius of Sir James Simpson to put into the hands of his fellow practitioners the means by which they might soothe to sleep the parturient patient and so carry out painlessly the most lengthy of these procedures. Chloroform not only allowed doctors to make better use of their tools in case of emergency, its promise of painless delivery also began to give them access to normal, uncomplicated births. The remarks of Algernon Temple, a late 19th century Toronto obstetrician, demonstrate something of the spirit in which this promise was held out to women. I have delivered women who made no outcry and seemed to suffer a minimum of pain. They did not wish to take chloroform, and as there seemed to be but little suffering, I did not insist upon its use. But I think it is the duty of every doctor to rob the lying-in chamber of all the agony possible. It is a cruel and disgraceful thing for him to sit and listen unmoved to the agonizing cries of a woman in this the most critical time of her existence, when he has the power to safely and easily relieve her. With little effort on his part, the lying-in room can be made very much less terrible to the prospective mother. Algernon Temple's gallantry does not entirely mask his feeling that there was something perverse about women refusing chloroform. And in their desire to reduce the pain of childbirth, a growing number of women did submit to the doctor's authority. But in the 19th century, there was still strong popular opposition to official medicine and a strong popular feeling for natural childbirth. Thomas Hersey, in a book called The Midwives' Practical Directory, gave voice to the sentiments of this movement. The young student learns in the dissecting room by seeing the sexual organs of a dead woman cut into pieces. He then passes for an accomplished accoucheur and is accounted by the multitude a learned man. But many a learned man is as ignorant of the true principles upon which a case of parturition should be managed as the native Hottentot ever was of Christian theology. Too many capable and excellent women lack confidence in themselves, and under the impression that labor is completed more by art than nature, they must immediately send for the doctor. Professional men naturally have no wish to undeceive them, their interests being too much concerned. I have often been astonished to see the credulity and ignorance manifested on these occasions. Thanks and blessings have been poured upon me under the idea that I had saved their lives in labor, 
when I had done nothing but look on and admire the perfectly adequate powers of nature. It is nature that accomplishes all, while the accoucheur gets the credit for it. The popular health movement which Thomas Hersey represented certainly acted as a break on the power of doctors. But women still consulted them in increasing numbers, and one of the attractions was undoubtedly chloroform. Subsequent anesthetics would require hospitalization, but for a long time chloroform continued to be used in the home, often with considerable risk to the mother. In her memoirs, Mabel Dubbin, a Victorian order nurse on Cape Breton Island, recalled the practice of one country doctor. When a confinement was difficult, Dr. McRae liked to have Dr. F. Macaulay assist him, but if his friend was not available, he would manage alone rather than have anyone else. It was then I wished I had another pair of hands and feet. I was not much good at giving an anaesthetic, for I generally let the mother come around too soon. This would make Dr. McRae irritable, and he would say, Can't you keep her asleep? Give her more chloroform. Give her plenty. There was an occasion when a mother stopped breathing for a few seconds, and we had to resort to artificial respiration. Another time a woman swallowed her tongue, and we had to pass a suture through the tip so that it could be kept forward until she was breathing normally again. When things like this happened, I was asked, Why did you give her so much chloroform? You must have emptied the bottle. I felt like saying, I was only obeying orders, but as usual, I said nothing. Although chloroform was still administered at home as late as the 1940s, the danger connected with its use was certainly one of the factors leading to the hospitalization of childbirth. And doctors had other reasons for preferring the hospital as well. In hospital, they were in control of their own time. Dr. Edmund Brassett, who practiced in rural Nova Scotia, recorded his relief at finally getting his childbirth cases into hospital. No longer did I have to go through the long hours of waiting, sometimes in not very comfortable surroundings, in order to be present for a task that might take only five or ten minutes. In a good hospital with a highly trained staff of nurses who know exactly when to call a doctor, there is little occasion for waiting. When I had my first few cases in hospital, I thought back on the couple of hundred births which I had attended in homes in Canso. I remembered the long hours of dreary waiting during which I was made aware of every single labor pain in greater or lesser degree, the importunities of distraught husbands and mothers to please do something, and the doleful prayers often chanted aloud by female relatives. The doleful prayers which distressed Dr. Brassett suggest that by the time he was writing, the doctor had already become the center of attention during childbirth. He was now the magic man whose chloroform and forceps were expected to transform the experience. Dr. Brassett was able to escape the family's unrealistic demands on him by removing his patient to hospital. There he needed to see her for no more than five or ten minutes while the family was eliminated altogether. From now on, birth would take place on the doctor's terms. I had been hearing vague whisperings about young women who declared that there was simply nothing to this business of having a baby, that they would be willing to have one every year if that's all there is to it. 
from a 1935 article in Chatelaine magazine entitled, Need Our Mothers Die? These whispers seemed worthy of investigation, particularly when they were accompanied by suggestions of the use of a new anesthetic. It's actually hyacinth, the doctor who knew stated. It's given hypodermically, it was learned, often in the very early first stages of labor. It has no bad effects and does not retard labor nor destroy the instinctive bearing down by which the mother, at a certain stage of her labor, aids in the delivery of the baby. There is really no reason for women suffering a great deal at the time of confinement, this doctor stated. The cost of hyacinth is negligible. It is given to the maternity patients in our public wards as a matter of routine, and, except in the cases of a few tradition-bound women who think that the more they suffer, the more they will love their children, and so refuse relief from pain, we find hyacinth almost ideal. Chatelaine's correspondent was writing about one variant of a childbirth anesthetic popularly called twilight sleep, and its use over a period of more than 40 years constitutes one of the most astonishing episodes in the history of obstetrics. It functioned as an amnesiac, removing not the pain of childbirth, but the memory of it. Its development was considered a breakthrough, because unlike the original anesthetic, chloroform, it could be used throughout labor, and not just for delivery. The problem was that although twilight sleep obliterated any subsequent memory of pain, it frequently intensified the actual experience of it during labor. The result was often wild and uncontrolled behavior by the laboring woman. Dr. Bertha Van Hoosen, an American obstetrician who was a strong proponent of twilight sleep, proposed that the problem be dealt with by turning the labor bed into a sort of cage. As the pains increase in frequency and strength, the patient tosses or throws herself about, but without injury to herself. She may be left without fear that she will roll onto the floor or be found wandering aimlessly in the corridors. In rare cases, where the patient is very excitable and insists on getting out of bed, I prefer to fasten a canvas cover over the tops of the screens, thereby shutting out light, noise, and the possibility of leaving the bed. Despite Dr. Van Hoosen's precautions, the problem of uncontrollable behavior continued and led to the use of narcotics like opium and heroin in conjunction with twilight sleep. These calmed the mothers, but depressed the babies, often to the extent that they were quite difficult to resuscitate after birth. A group of doctors, writing in the Canadian Medical Association Journal in 1933, welcomed the development of new resuscitation equipment because, in their words, it will allow morphine to be used to greater advantage for women in labor. But even with narcotics, the behavior of women under twilight sleep or scopolamine, as it was called in the U.S., continued to present a remarkable spectacle. Dr. Michelle Harrison. What would happen is that women would be given scopolamine. They would be so uncontrollable that they would have to be restrained. Sometimes, you know, arms and legs restrained. They were in labor. They were screaming. It doesn't dull the pain at all. They would be biting. They would be cursing. Um, if they got loose, they would hit. They would. I mean, it was just bedlam. In, in really the traditional sense of that word. And then when the medication wore off, the woman would sort of come out of it 
and she wouldn't remember on a conscious level what had happened and she'd say my doctor put me out I was asleep for the whole labor and and they wouldn't remember any of that behavior the problems of that are, are multiple I mean first of all on many of these women would develop nightmares afterward and have flashback memories of what that experience was and totally not understand it because after all they believed that they had been asleep the second thing is that it really gave the medical staff license to treat the women as somewhat less than human, you know, to treat them as, as animals, to treat them as people who were not capable of maintaining control and, and would bring on a lot of abusive behavior toward the women on the part of the medical staff. And this was hailed as, as easy births. And, and it was interesting because it was women who initially who had most access to money and recognized doctors who, who had the benefit of the so-called painless childbirth. In fact, the right to twilight sleep was actually part of the suffragist platform in North America and Europe before the First World War. But its drawbacks made many doctors reluctant to use it and led to a search for acceptable alternatives. What was wanted was a drug that would produce a tractable patient without endangering the health of the baby. What resulted was a period of often uncontrolled experimentation on birthing women. Depending on the city and the hospital, women were given rectal ether or intravenous barbiturates or nitrous oxide, sometimes alone, sometimes in combination with hyacine, morphine, or heroin. Each new drug was heralded as safe for both mother and baby. Side effects such as prolonged drowsiness, vomiting, double vision, or impaired hearing were downplayed. But women who experienced them must have taken them more seriously, and it is easy to see how twilight sleep could have remained the least unpleasant alternative. Moreover, since it was an amnesiac, most women who received it could not have known what it did to them, and one presumes that their doctors were not eager to tell them. Occasionally, however, the amnesia did not take effect, and then the experience was unforgettable. Eleanor Enkin. My memory is that I was left in alone in a dark room, literally, without anybody coming in. Now and again, a nurse came in and spoke to me brusquely, then when labor got harder, she came and gave me uh, an injection that she told me was Demerol. That would dull the pain. Then, as labor got harder, they gave me a drug called Hyacine. And I absolutely lost control. They told me this drug would make me forget. It's an amnesiac. It didn't. All I remember was being completely out of control. It was a very demoralizing feeling. And I just felt that, first of all, I kept saying to myself, this is the most excruciating pain I've ever felt. And women um, nurses came in, and I had a feeling they were yelling at me. Then the next memory I have of that is about five people standing around my bed in the labor room, all yelling at me, push, push, push. And I felt I had absolutely no control. I had no way I could push. And I was told later on I was making a lot of noise. And it was just a real horror. And a couple of hours later, I guess in those days they used to use general anesthetic. And 
I was taken down to the uh, delivery room, put to sleep, and they must have used forceps because there was a mark on Susie's head. And um, I woke up hours later, told I had a baby girl that was in the nursery, and eventually they brought her out to me. And uh, that was fine. I don't know that I had any, it was deprived of any feelings for her because, but I did look back on that experience as a horror. For Eleanor Enkin, twilight sleep simply didn't work. But there were other women for whom it did work as promised who still came to regret their decision to accept it. Winnie Weatherstone gave birth to her third child in the early 1940s. On the advice of a nurse friend, I confessed to my cowardness at the pain. And she said, you must tell your doctor that you have these feelings. I said, yes, I'm terrified of the birth, because to me it's such an agonizing pain. <laughs> and so my doctor gave me twilight sleep, and I didn't feel anything except the first, the, the membrane breaking, and then the first big contraction. And you know, it's funny. I felt I hadn't earned her. I felt my cowardice. And I thought, you coward. You had such a tremendous feeling of accomplishment with the other two, even though it had been terribly painful. Twilight sleep continued to be used into the 1950s but it was gradually replaced by newer regional anesthetics, which acted on specific nerves without affecting consciousness as a whole. These, for the first time, produced what doctors had wanted all along, a patient who was both comfortable and compliant. The first large-scale controlled study to compare regional with general anesthetic was published in the United States in 1946. It showed a number of advantages to the mother plus a 50% reduction in infant mortality. This dramatic conclusion, if correct, suggests that many infant deaths must have been the direct result of the use of general anesthetics for childbirth. in spite of the best care, kills thousands of women every year. It leaves at least half of the women confined more or less invalid, and a majority with permanent anatomic changes of structure, as well as being attended by severe pains and tearing of tissue. Can a function so perilous be called normal? By the 1920s, when Dr. Joseph DeLee of Chicago wrote these remarkable words in his influential obstetrical textbook, many doctors seemed to have come to the conclusion that childbirth without medical intervention was well-nigh impossible. Theories multiplied as to the unfitness of modern women to endure labor. Pituitrin, a synthetic hormone used to induce labor and strengthen contractions, had been in use since 1913, Surgical widening of the birth opening, or episiotomy, became routine in many obstetrical practices in the 1920s. 
forceps deliveries and caesarean sections were both on the increase. There was also increasing concern with the possibility of cephalopelvic disproportion, a condition in which the baby's head is judged too big or the mother's pelvis too small to permit passage. A 10-year study conducted at this time at the University of Iowa could verify this condition in only 0.2% of all cases, but the idea that it was common persisted nevertheless. For example, Dr. L. C. Kahn of the University of Alberta conducted a study in which he discovered that in 80% of cases diagnosed as disproportion, the woman's pelvic measurements were actually normal. Remarkably, he concluded not that the diagnosis was wrong, but rather that all women should therefore be considered as potential cases of disproportion. This anxiety about disproportion might lead either to premature induction of labor, which increased risk to the baby, or to cesarean section, which increased risk to the mother. Dr. L.J. Harris was one of a number of obstetricians who pleaded for conservatism in the use of this operation. He took his figures from American surveys, but felt that they applied to Canada as well. There are 25,000 cesarean sections in the USA each year, with a maternal mortality of about 10%. This is at least 20 times as great as the maternal death rate for vaginal deliveries. There's excellent evidence to show that about three-quarters of these sections are not justified. Caesarean section offers an easy way out of all obstetrical difficulties, saving the attendant a great deal of time, work, and worry. It requires very little art and is an excellent substitute for experience and judgment. It is also much more dramatic and likely to make a good impression on the family. One gets very little credit for a skillful, successful delivery from below, but even an unnecessary caesarean usually makes the family feel that the attendant has done something wonderful and has saved the mother's or the baby's life. It also commands a much larger fee. Dr. Harris published this article in 1937, but his cautions did little to stem the steady increase in caesareans. One reason may have been the growing conviction among obstetricians that prolonged labor was unsafe for the baby as well as the mother. And then, as Dr. Harris noted, the caesarean had a certain dramatic appeal for the doctor as well. This same appeal was noted many years later by Dr. Michelle Harrison of Boston when she performed caesarean sections as an obstetrical resident. It's a compelling experience to deliver a baby by caesarean section. I mean, it's the one time that you really feel that you have delivered this baby, saved this baby, you know, it looks good. You can really convince yourself that you've done everybody a favor, and it, it's, it's very exciting. It, it's absolutely, I mean, it, it truly takes the experience away from the mother and, and gives it to the physician. But if you believe that, that it's really dangerous in there, um, and that the whole birth process is dangerous. And I know there are obstetricians, they cannot imagine why women are upset about the cesarean section, because they believe that they've saved everybody a lot of trouble. At a meeting of the Canadian Medical Association's Maternal Health Committee, held in Ottawa in 1919, Dr. Seymour, the Medical Officer of Health for Saskatchewan, gave the following information in confidence to his fellow committee members. 
I made a compilation of some statistics regarding maternal mortality in Saskatchewan a few years ago, and the results were not at all favorable. They were such that I did not think it would have been well to give them to the public. They showed that maternal mortality was much higher in the 50% of confinements attended by medical men. They also showed that a very large number of women were confined without either nurse or doctor in attendance, and in these cases, maternal mortality was much lower. I mentioned the results of this compilation of statistics regarding maternal mortality at a meeting of the Saskatchewan Medical Association, and I was very strongly taken to task by some of the members for even compiling these figures. I told them I thought the proper place to give these figures was to a meeting of medical men. I was taking care that they were not being published. Despite Dr. Seymour's concern to keep his statistics quiet, the mounting evidence that all was not well with the new obstetrics was bound to get out sooner or later. It finally happened in 1929 with the publication of a major study of maternal mortality in Aberdeen, Scotland. The authors of the study investigated all maternal deaths in Aberdeen over a 10-year period. They found that for midwives attending birth at home, the maternal death rate was 2.8 per thousand. For doctors attending at home, it was 6.9 per thousand, while for doctors attending in hospital, it was 14.9 per thousand. The Aberdeen study was well publicized in the medical press and was closely followed by two American studies which painted an equally unflattering portrait of modern obstetrics. Both pointed to puerperal infection and excessive intervention as causes of the high maternal death rates. One of them, done by the White House Conference on Child Health, concluded from its survey of 11 American states that maternal mortality had not declined from 1915 to 1930, while the number of infant deaths due to birth injury had actually increased by 40 to 50 percent. Another factor which may have contributed to the poor showing of hospitals in these studies was the fact that until the end of the 1940s they were staffed almost entirely by student nurses, who were sometimes thrown straight onto the wards with little or no training. This is the recollection of one nurse who trained in Montreal in the 1940s. I took my obstetrical training at the Royal Vic. We had two lectures before going on to the floor, so we didn't know a heck of a lot. That first day in the case room, I had five in labor. One of them was a 15-year-old girl, and she kept yelling, I want my mother, I want my mother. And by the end of the afternoon, I wanted my mother too, because I didn't know what I was doing. I would try to listen to the fetal hearts, but I didn't know. One thing I especially remember was an obstetrician's convention that happened while I was in the case room. They had it organized so they would have a whole string of deliveries to watch, and we had to induce people or hold people back so it would all go off on schedule. It was just awful. We were actually holding women's legs together to prevent them from delivering until their turn had come. And I thought afterwards, I wouldn't let my cat have kittens in that hospital. Although they didn't have the additional hazard of obstetrical conventions, the situation was often worse in small-town hospitals. They accepted the same mix of patients and disease types as their urban counterparts, but often lacked comparable space, staff, or equipment. 
A nurse named Banfield, who was traveling through Canada in the 1930s, recorded her horrified impression of one such hospital, operated by the United Church at Kenyon. As regards the hospital itself, at first it seemed inconceivable to me that such crude medical conditions could exist. All was confusion. A practical nurse cared for the newborn babies. Impetigo, dysentery, sick babies and orphan children mingled in the only children's ward. The only equipment in the combined outpatient examining delivery room was a stretcher and a leather sofa. It was quite natural to find a woman in labor on the wheeled-in operating room stretcher, shielded by a flimsy screen that did not screen, which offered no protection from the germs of a suspected typhoid or venereal patient. I have seen the doctor waiting to deliver the expectant mother examine a man with venereal disease on the dilapidated black sofa a few feet away from the laboring mother on the other side of the screen. Obviously, in the hospital at Kenyon, there were no effective controls on puerperal infection. Such infections had been the number one problem in obstetrics from the time that doctors first began to replace midwives in the lying-in chamber. The problem intensified when birth was brought into the hospital because of the variety and the virulence of germs that were concentrated there. Puerperal infection, in the era before antibiotics, frequently resulted in death. Since there was no cure, doctors concentrated their efforts on prevention. But their heroic efforts at disinfection often ended up simply aggravating the problem, as an editorialist in the Canada Lancet had pointed out as early as 1896. Not many years ago, it was discovered that the vaginal canal abounded in microorganisms. Without stopping to consider whether these organisms were pathogenic or non-pathogenic, the members of the medical profession vaulted over one another to devise some means of getting rid of these pestiferous germs. It was first advised that the vaginal douche should be employed after labor only. This did not satisfy the would-be famous obstetricians, so they ventured a step further in advance and advised that the douche should be used prior to labor as well as afterwards. Then came the assertion that to obtain good results, the vaginal douche should be used several days before the commencement of labor to be certain that the canal was entirely rid of the microorganisms. Then followed the antiseptic intrauterine douche at the completion of labor. It was then thought best to employ the intrauterine douche for many days after the confinement. The climax in obstetrics was not reached, however, until the sharp curette was applied to the lining of the uterus as soon as labor was entirely completed. If these so-called progressive obstetricians had taken the pains to consult the statistics of the country doctor or midwife, they would have discovered that the old practitioners who had delivered women by the thousands never possessed a syringe, curette, or anything of the kind, never used by chloride solutions or any other antiseptic solution for any purpose and who, as a result, never had a case of puerperal septicemia. The Lancet editorial makes it clear that disinfection often produced more problems than it solved. But despite this devastating lampoon in the major medical journal of the time, the war on infection proceeded. Medical culture favored aggressive technological measures, and so the use of the curette and douche continued virtually unabated. 
Then, in 1914, Dr. James Goodall of McGill and the Royal Victoria Hospital once again tried to call a halt. With what a toll have we learned our lesson? How many of these cases have we explored only to find blood clot or perhaps a morsel of placenta or of membranes to justify our procedure? And how often, too, have we seen the case greatly aggravated by this so-called harmless digital exploration? Even more harmful has been the intrauterine douche. I cannot help comparing this lavage treatment of the uterus to the treatment of general peritonitis, which was generally in vogue a few years ago. It is well within the recollection of everyone when it was thought the duty of the surgeon to lift out the intestines in order to wash them with saline, thus wiping off the plaques of lymph, the very safeguards of nature. The result was the same as in puerperal infections, increased absorption of bacteria and toxins, chills, and sometimes death. Despite Dr. Goodall's demonstration of the dangers of disinfection, the practices he deplored continued, a pattern to be observed over and over again in the history of obstetrics. Medicine is as much a matter of custom and culture as it is of science, and sheer momentum often carried most doctors past the warnings of their more skeptical colleagues. But this momentum was halted temporarily in the early 1930s with the publication of the Aberdeen, New York, and White House studies, which forced re-evaluation of many obstetrical practices. In the case of puerperal infections, this re-evaluation resulted in a tightening of hospital rules, which increased the isolation of women in labor. Staff were required to wear masks whenever they came in contact with a laboring woman and were discouraged from touching her, except when doing an essential procedure. A vaginal examination was preceded by full surgical disinfection. Eventually, antibiotics would eliminate the need for these precautions. But the pattern of isolation, which developed in the 1920s and hardened into dogma in the 1930s, left its mark on hospital practice for many more years. I didn't know much about having babies, and it was all kept very quiet. And I remember that, you know, there was something funny about my aunt, and then suddenly she had this baby, but I really never knew until I was quite an age where babies came from. And in those days, people did not talk about pregnancy. They certainly, they never talked about uh, how they felt. And of course, people didn't go out either when they were pregnant. It was a whole different approach. So I was, ter I was afraid of having a baby. There was a lot of emphasis put on the discomfort of having children. And, and nothing was ever said about this glorious feeling of having children in those days, nothing. And they talked about whether they had a spinal, and oh, it was just wonderful. You could get a spinal and, and then you, you didn't feel anything and it was all so comfortable and they wouldn't have it any other way. And if anybody really felt any great joy in the actual birth, I never heard anybody admit it. By the time Mary Ellis was having her babies in the 1940s, there was very little left of the women's culture which had once made childbirth a source of celebration as well as of suffering. Indeed, this was probably the major reason why there was so little resistance to medical management of childbirth between the 1920s and the 1940s. 
public health nurses, and government pamphlets, even went so far as to discourage women from sharing their experiences with each other. The following example appeared in the Canadian Mother and Child, which was published by the Federal Department of Health and Welfare. Gatherings, such as bridges and teas, are often the occasion of unwise discussions as to the relative merits of doctors. After careful consideration, you have chosen a doctor. Therefore, do not let yourself be influenced by those whose judgment is no better than your own. There is nothing more disheartening than to hear your doctor criticized or other doctors praised above him. To be happy, you need to have complete confidence in your doctor. Anyone criticizing him to you, and at the same time knowing your condition, lacks discernment, to say the least, and should not be taken seriously. Do not rely on members of your own family for help, and especially do not insist on it. At the best, they are poor helpers at such a time, and often they create difficulties for the attendant by being too solicitous. The advice given by the Canadian mother and child was part of a continuing campaign to replace community self-reliance with dependence on professional services. Even home births were remodeled in the image of the hospital. Mabel Dubbin was a Victorian Order nurse in Cape Breton in the 1920s, and she recorded one such case. It was important that I see the bedroom, as sometimes it was more convenient if the bed was turned around or for the wife to use another room. All this had been discussed with the young wife who was expecting her first child. On my last prenatal visit, I asked to see the bedroom again. I found that they had moved into a smaller room so that everything could be scrupulously clean in the confinement room. The husband, who was keenly interested in the preparation being made for the happy event, asked me if I was satisfied. Yes, I replied, but it is a pity that you have redecorated the room with such dark colors, for they can be depressing. Your wife, I am sure, would feel more cheerful if the room were brighter. A week later, when I opened the bedroom door to prepare the delivery, I stood in amazement and exclaimed, you painted this big room all over again. Well, I wanted to have everything to your liking. Besides, there is nothing too good for my wife. It's wonderful, I said, just like a hospital room. And it was, too. The walls were painted a pale green, and the wainscot white. <laughs> Obstetrics, during its formative phase, treated childbirth as if it were fundamentally a technical problem. The emphasis was on disinfection, drugs, and surgery. As long as the baby was delivered, the subjective experience of the woman doing the delivering was not considered particularly significant. But it is precisely this experience of childbirth, in all of its sensory richness and complexity, which prepares a woman for the arrival of her baby. Midwife Mary Sharp. There are some very simple, basic, sensual aspects, I think, of birthing that are, are muted by the hospital experience in a very direct way. 
by the draping, for example, by somebody else handling the baby, somebody else washing the baby, being able to see, being able to touch, being able to smell. I think those, those senses or sensations enrich the experience and really aid the, the, the mother and the father's feelings. And maybe it's as simple as that, that, that these physical things allow for, for a holier experience. Perhaps a, a birth experience that allows the woman to be more whole, her family to be more whole with her, is one that just doesn't concentrate on her head, i.e. I'm having a baby even though I'm, I'm anesthetized from the waist down. It doesn't only, only focus on her body or her perineum, you know, her head seeing that the baby is coming out, but the experience is blocked because of the draping from her waist down. And then as the baby comes out, she doesn't feel the wetness of the baby against her thigh. And she also doesn't smell or really hear. If the baby is taken right away from her, then she can't immediately be in touch with his sight, with his, his this little sounds that he's making. And she can't be in touch immediately with the vernex and the slipperiness and the amniotic fluid from which he's come. All of those things help. They're all, I think, nature's way of preparing the mother to welcome her new baby. And if they're suppressed, then it becomes very difficult for her. As well as undermining the integrity of women's experience of childbirth, medical management also had the effect of eliminating any significant variation in the process. Norms were erected which covered all labors, and anything falling outside these norms was treated as pathological by definition. The eventual result of this was that doctors practicing in hospitals saw only the restricted version of childbirth which they themselves had created. For example, deliveries invariably took place with the woman flat on her back, so doctors never got to see the results of birth in other positions. It was not until births once again began to take place outside of hospitals that the extent of individual variation was rediscovered. Barbara Katz Rothman is a sociologist at Baruch College in New York and the author of Giving Birth. I saw this in a number of midwives working out of the hospital outside of medical definitions coming to a redefinition of the beginning of second stage, which is instructive. The medical definition of second stage is an objective definition. It begins at full dilatation, which you, you put your hand on the woman's cervix and you feel if it's fully dilated. And if it is, you say second stage has now begun. Um, what the midwives saw working outside of the hospital was that if a woman was not at that moment transferred to a delivery table and told to push and all this stuff going on, what happened to some women was that when they reached full dilatation, rather than having an urge to push, which is more common, more commonly as full dilatation approaches, a woman's voice starts catching and you can hear begin to push. Other women, that just didn't happen. They reached full dilatation and they were just exhausted from the labor, they were real tired, and they're so glad to have the pain of the labor stop. They'd fall asleep, <laughs> they, would, um, they would seem to forget they were having a baby, they'd get into a conversation, whatever. They would not focus on having the baby. And a, a number of midwives described 
watching the women at that point just relax, sometimes literally fall asleep, and then wake up or stir or start moving again, maybe an hour, an hour and a half later sometimes. And then after a while, she'd start saying, oh, I've got to go to the bathroom. I've just got to go to the bathroom. And the midwife would say, well, that's probably not what you think it is. <laughs> that's the sensation of the baby. And if you push with it now, you'll push out the baby. Um, and so the midwives that I interviewed moved to a different, not only a different definition of second stage, but a different way of defining it, and said second stage doesn't begin when I feel the woman is fully dilated. Second stage begins when a woman feels ready to push out the baby, which is sometime after she becomes fully dilated. But the medical definition allowed for no break between first stage and second stage. You'd never see such a break, of course, if you've got the woman strapped up on a delivery table at that point. Nobody takes a nap. So that they never saw that there could be an interlude between the two stages. So every woman who had this interlude was then defined as having a delayed second stage, um, and that's a basis for using forceps for, in some cases, even doing a cesarean section at that point if the woman absolutely cannot push out the baby. So that's a way that you could take what might very well be normal for a woman and defining it as pathology and ending up treating it in such a way as to create the pathology that we create when we use forceps or cesarean sections. Medicine not only suppressed variation and sensory integrity in the physical process of childbearing, it also in a sense expropriated the spiritual and psychological dimension of the experience. And this was a matter of concern not only to women but to families and communities as well. Birth either creates or changes a family and is often a kind of catharsis for all who are involved. But once birth was removed to hospital, this powerful experience ceased to belong to the family, and so a unique opportunity for change and growth was often lost. Mary Sharp concludes tonight's program. Birth itself is, is a crisis. It's an event which requires enormous energy and focus and attention. And as with any crisis, in any crisis situation, there are all sorts of working throughs that happen. Um, she all of a sudden feels her partner's support in perhaps a way she's never felt it before, and perhaps she doesn't feel it, and she wishes to feel it more strongly. And so something can happen between them, increased love and caring, or maybe a questioning about her relationship with her, her man. She sees something within herself. Very often there's a, an incredible drawing inward on the part of the mother, pulling at all the strength and power within herself. All her inner resources come to play to, to work with, with the labor. And I've actually seen some women who've fought the labor enormously in the early phases where one might assume that labor is much easier and then by the time they're into very, very difficult labor, before she starts t to push, the mum comes to an inner calm. Uh, she sometimes can become very meditative and, and see something that she's never seen before. Or on the other hand, a woman almost perhaps an opposite, opposite um, thing happens to her. She has been very quiet and inner, but perhaps somewhat tense with it and she learns to let herself go. She learns to perhaps close her eyes and writhe and make noises and moan and become more of a creature.
become one with nature in a sense and with one, one with the forces that are happening within her body. She, in a sense, surrenders to the process and learns something about that, learns something about herself through that, that that, that indeed is a part of her. Tonight on Ideas, you've been listening to the second program in our four-part repeat series, Doctoring the Family. The program was researched by Jutta Mason, written by Jutta Mason and David Cayley, and presented by David Cayley. Production assistant, Alison Moss. Technical operations by Lorne Tulk and Keith Vanderclay. Readings by Claire Coulter and Frank Perry. Production, Jill Eisen. A transcript of this four-part series is available for $7. If you'd like a copy, write Doctoring the Family, Care of CBC Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W, 1E6. Enclose a cheque or money order for $7 payable to CBC Enterprises, and please be prepared to wait eight weeks for delivery. We've put together a reading list to accompany this series, and it's free. Write to us at Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W, 1E6. Tomorrow night on Ideas, in the last episode of our series, There Go the 80s, York University professor and broadcaster Seth Feldman looks at the culture of the decade gone by and at the search for a new sensibility. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night.